0: On a sunny afternoon in June of 1947, just after 3 p.m., Kenneth Arnold looked out the window of the small private airplane he was piloting and blinked, confused by what he saw. Several bright lights, each as large as a plane but circular in shape, were racing across the summer sky. Arnold was flying low, taking a detour from a business trip to look for a missing military plane that was supposed to have crashed in the area As the lights grew closer, he adjusted his eyeglasses and looked around. His fear was that the objects were other aircraft reflecting sunlight to such a degree that they were essentially glowing blurs. But that didn't make sense. The shapes were too close together, too coordinated, and far too fast to be other planes. Arnold was low enough in altitude where he could roll down his window for a better look. He counted nine of the shining objects moving towards Washington State's Mount Rainier at speeds he estimated to be nearly 2,000 miles per hour, roughly triple the speed of any existing aircraft in 1947. Not trusting his eyes, Arnold continued to observe shapes. He tried to make another guess at their speed as they passed the mountain. Even his lowest estimates marked the lights as moving at least 1,200 miles per hour still faster than any plane, military, or civilian that Arnold had ever heard about. Whatever the objects were, they were gone within minutes due to their unnatural speed. Arnold followed them as well as he could, taking note of as many details as possible. He believed that the craft all had a circular or disc-like shape. In later interviews about the encounter, Arnold would occasionally refer to the lights as saucers Arnold's brief time observing the nine lights over Mount Rainier was the first significant sighting of unidentified flying objects, also known as UFOs, in post-World War II America. But it was far from the last. Arnold had a reputation as an honest and no-nonsense man. He was a respected pilot, a business owner, and known for being methodical and accurate. Reporters loved him, and flocked to him for interviews once the story of his encounter came out. Arnold was not media hungry by any account, but also wasn't shy in talking to fellow pilots and airport workers about his experience. Initially assuming the objects were experimental military test craft, Arnold began to question that theory as his story gained national attention and new reports of similar sightings came to light. The pilot, soon found himself in the middle of the first, modern UFO mania sweeping America. Due to his experience and steady nature, Arnold was quickly called upon to speak with other individuals claiming to have come in contact with unexplained, potentially extraterrestrial events. He didn't have to wait long. Barely a week after seeing the nine lights, another sighting added fuel to the fire again making national headlines in what would become the second of three major UFO encounters that would end with two deaths, claims of a hoax, and the first descriptions of shadowy government employees known as the Men in Black. Part One, an encounter on the 4th of July. 10 days after Arnold's run-in with the Nine Lights, United Airlines Flight 105 took off from Idaho en route to Oregon. It was a little after 8 p.m. and the sun was fading. Skies were clear, passengers were settled, and the crew of 105 was relaxed. They were even joking about being on the lookout for flying saucers, since they were in the same part of the country where Arnold reported the lights. The crew's jokes fell silent when the first object was detected approaching the passenger flight. Assuming the hard-to-see craft was most likely just another airplane on a similar route, The co-pilot, Ralph Stevens, flashed their landing lights to warn the visitor of their presence nearby. Moments after flashing those lights, Flight 105 Captain E.J. Smith saw what he would later call four or five somethings come into view of the cockpit. For the next 12 minutes, Stevens and Smith watched as the objects kept pace with the plane. During that time, They officially radioed in the sighting to a nearby air traffic control tower. Not seeking to panic their passengers, the pilots didn't make any announcement to the cabin, but did ask a flight attendant to come to the cockpit to observe the phenomenon with them. They counted a possible total of nine UFOs, though they couldn't confirm the number as the shapes moved in and out of sight. Smith described them as appearing smooth on the bottom of the craft with a rougher top. After those 12 minutes, the lights abruptly vanished, leading the pilots to wonder if they'd crashed or simply sped off too quickly to follow. After Flight 105 landed, the story spread like wildfire, hot on the heels of Arnold's similar account. There were hundreds of reported sightings in the summer of 47, following the first reports of the nine lights. However, most were obvious hoaxes or easily dismissed as attention-seeking. But the Arnold incident and Flight 105 were standouts due to the level of detail and the credibility of witnesses. Like Arnold, Smith was a respected pilot with no history of mental illness, and he was backed up by both his co-pilot and the flight's stewardess. While none of the passengers witnessed the UFOs on the 4th of July, Smith confirmed that the lights stayed ahead of the plane and were only viewable from the cockpit. The United States government remained silent in those first few weeks of the summer of UFOs. However, a few days after the Flight 105 encounter, the Roswell Army Airfield in New Mexico released a statement to the press claiming military personnel had just recovered a flying disc in the desert. This was the infamous Roswell incident, which launched hundreds of theories about life outside of Earth. However, the day after the announcement, Roswell changed their statement and told reporters that what they found was only a common weather balloon. The immediate reversal left many in the public skeptical. If the multiple UFO sightings added fuel to a growing fire, then the government's statement followed by an instant denial poured gasoline onto the blaze. The country couldn't get enough with some believing that genuine contact with extraterrestrial life might happen any day. Questions circulated about what that meeting could look like. Would these visitors be friendly or something else? Part two, a rain of rocks and metal. Ken Arnold never wanted to be a celebrity. He was a modest man, a former Eagle scout and star high school football player. The spotlight didn't feel comfortable to Arnold, particularly since his fame was tied to such bizarre circumstances. By his own admission, Arnold knew that a large section of the public considered him a nut job, or worse, a con artist. But his account of the nine lights never wavered, and he was a convincing figure, well-trusted by the media and the average Joe. At least, credible compared to the usual type of person claiming to see phantom lights in the sky. With Arnold's solid reputation, it made sense that he would soon be asked to help investigate other UFO sightings to determine if they seemed legitimate. That was the theory followed by Raymond Palmer, the editor of Amazing Stories, a science fiction magazine, when he contacted Arnold with an offer. Palmer asked the pilot to interview the crew of a small boat that claimed to have been injured during an encounter with several UFOs on June 21, 1947, three days prior to Arnold's own spotting of the lights. However, the Maury Island story had remained under the radar for more than a month. Palmer thought it would be a perfect fit for amazing stories, if he could be fairly certain of its accuracy. So he provided Arnold with $200 for expenses and asked him to investigate, a task Arnold agreed to. The captain of the craft, Harold Dahl, was willing to meet with Arnold, but told the aviator that he was nervous. One of the reasons the Maury Island incident hadn't seen as much press as other encounters was due to a direct threat from the government, according to Dahl. He told Arnold, that the actual sighting was similar to many others that were reported that summer. Dahl and his crew, as well as his young son and their dog, were boating in Puget Sound in Washington State, just east of Maury Island, on a conservation mission. Right around 2 p.m., Dahl claimed that six donut flying objects appeared over his boat, hovering about half a mile up in the air. As the crew watched, one of the six crafts began to drop hundreds of pieces of unknown material. Initially, the captain thought the UFO was dumping newspapers, but later believed it to be sheets of thin white metal. In addition to the sheets, Dahl told Arnold that the craft then began spilling something resembling lava rocks down directly onto their boat. The barrage allegedly broke the arm of Dahl's son, as well as killing his son's dog. The six craft then flew away. After telling the story to his supervisor, Fred Chrisman, that same day, Chrisman agreed to visit Maury Island, even though he was skeptical of the entire account. However, once reaching the island, Chrisman became a believer, telling Arnold in a later interview that he observed some kind of saucer-like aircraft, as well as several of the thin metal sheets Dahl claimed fell from the sky. It was a hell of a story. Dahl's descriptions of the craft were consistent with other reports. If the account was accurate, it would show evidence that these visitors could be dangerous, whether the damage was accidental or intentional. Perhaps more disturbing was Dahl's second claim of interference from the US government. He told Arnold during the initial interview that the main reason he hadn't gone public with his story was a meeting he had with a US agent the day after the sighting. According to Dahl, a man in a black suit, sunglasses, and hat was waiting for him the next morning on his usual route to work. This stranger identified himself as working for the government, though he didn't specify which agency. The man in black brought Dahl to a local diner, sat him down, and then recounted with perfect detail everything that happened to the captain the day before. That shouldn't have been possible, Dahl told Arnold, as he'd only talked to Chrisman about the incident. Other than that, the only witnesses were his crew and his son, none of which he believed would have contacted the government so quickly. Before Dahl could shake off his shock, the man in black left, departing with warning to Dahl to stay quiet about the UFO encounter or else bad things would happen. While this threat kept the story suppressed, after seeing other similar accounts, Dahl told Arnold that he felt compelled to come forward so that the truth would come out, whatever the consequences. Part three, the consequences. Arnold was amazed by Dahl's story, but was determined to do his due diligence in investigating the incident. He first reached out to E.J. Smith, the captain of Flight 105. Since Dahl, Smith, and Arnold had all reported similar sightings, the investigator thought it would be smart for the three to meet to compare notes. Like Arnold, Smith maintained a credible reputation, and his opinion would be a significant factor in whether the sighting was believed or debunked. Once all the parties were assembled, Dahl and Chrisman provided the others with a sample of the metal material they claimed to have recovered from Maury Island. The debris was underwhelming. Neither Arnold nor Smith found the objects to be in any way strange, exotic, or unexplainable. The material appeared to be simple metal sheeting or basic junk. Despite this initial strike against Dahl's story, Arnold decided to ask for help from professionals. He reached out to contacts in the US Air Force and ended up bringing on two members of military intelligence Captain William Davidson, and Lieutenant Frank Brown onto the investigation. As the group continued to dig into the sighting, media attention about all things UFO grew and grew around them. The Pacific Northwest was beginning to be seen as a hotspot for alien encounters. A general air of government silence on the matter further energized suspicions that something big was happening. Back in Washington, Arnold met up with Captain Davidson and Lieutenant Brown at a hotel to provide them with all of his interview notes and reports. The military intelligence officers were professional and courteous. Despite the unusual nature of their investigation, they took it seriously, conducting their own interview of Dahl, Chrisman, and any other witnesses. The pair also collected material from Maury Island and the surrounding area. Within a few days, They were ready to return to their offices with what they'd gathered. The plan was to dedicate time to analyzing witness accounts and evidence in a neutral location before submitting an official report. On the morning of August 1st, 1947, Davidson and Brown boarded a B-52 aircraft for their flight, departing from McCord Field, an Air Force base just south of Tacoma. They would never arrive at their destination. Even today, there's a lot of confusion surrounding the crash of that B-52. According to some of the crew who survived, the crash began with a malfunction in the left engine not too long after takeoff. The engine soon burst into flames, even as the airmen struggled to prepare to bail out. As flames swirled around the plane, the crew began leaping out with parachutes. The last of them saw Lieutenant Brown on deck, ready to jump, But still within the aircraft, while Captain Davidson was still in the cockpit. Neither would make it outside of the B 52. Their burned bodies were later found in the wreckage outside of Kelso, Washington. Whatever materials they'd brought with them were lost in the fire. Part four Hoax or Cover Up. Following the deaths of two military intelligence officers, The Federal Bureau of Investigation stepped in to examine the Maury Island incident. The FBI inquiry was resolved quickly with a striking conclusion. It was all a hoax. In their official report, FBI agents claimed that they got differing statements from Dahl and Chrisman. The government concluded that the sighting was an attempt by the men to sell their story for profit and their previous remarks were fabricated. U.S. Air Force officer Captain Edward Rumpelt came to the same conclusion, remarking years later in 1956 that the whole Maury Island mystery was a hoax. The first, possibly the second best, and the dirtiest hoax in UFO history. Many accused Amazing Stories publisher Raymond Palmer of orchestrating the entire Maury Island story and bringing in Arnold in the hopes of lending an air of legitimacy to the escapade. However, Despite the government closing the case, doubts and questions still remain today. What really caused the B-52 carrying the investigators and their evidence to crash? Even if Maury Island wasn't true? What about the similar sightings by Arnold and Flight 105? And the differing statements that the FBI claimed Dahl and Chrisman made? Could those have been forced out with coercion? Was the man in black real And did he follow through on his threats to get Dahl to change his tune? Eventually, the fever of UFO summer died down, and most of the public wrote off the crazy summer as a fun distraction. But the sightings in 1947 planted a seed that has never stopped growing. Roswell, Area 51, Project Blue Book, the real Men in Black. Many are convinced that alien life not only exists, but is well-documented, and hidden by major governments across the planet. Whether that's to prevent panic or to maintain control, opinions vary. So the next time you look up at the night sky and see glowing lights that might be stars or might be something else, make sure you look closely. Did they move? Did they blink? Are they coming closer?